Welcome to Palace Confidential, the weekly podcast all about the royal family where we assemble some of Britain's most fabulous experts and commentators and delve into the news coming out of the palaces to keep you royally clued up. I'm your host, Joe Elvin, editor of the Mail on Sunday's You magazine. Don't forget to subscribe to us on Spotify, Apple and Google. And if you haven't already, why not sign up for the daily Mail Plus briefing at mailplus.co.uk, where you can also watch Palace Confidential on video. Hello and welcome to Palace Confidential, your weekly look at all things royal brought to you from Mail Plus headquarters here in Kensington. I'm Jess King, standing in for Joe Elvin this week. Let's start with the eye-opening revelations from the updated version of Andrew Morton's biography of Meghan Markle, which has been serialised in the Mail on Sunday. He spoke to us earlier this week. I think the tussle, the kind of Cain and Abel breakup between William and Harry stems from the fact that Harry felt that he was very supportive of William when he was undergoing his long courtship of Catherine. And remember, Catherine and, and her family came in for some flack from inside the royal family. That you know, that, um, There was never any sense uh, that Catherine was the one. She was always seen as a girlfriend from or a, a friend from university who would fade into the background and everybody inside the palace was blindsided when she became a real item of Williams. And Harry felt that he'd supported William and he didn't feel that he was getting the same kind of support from his uh, brother uh, during his courtship with Meghan. I think that there's, there was relief inside the royal family uh, that Meghan and Harry had decided to go abroad and relinquish their royal, their royal duties institutionally it was a grievous blow because they were undoubtedly popular and they were relevant to all minorities in the commonwealth and in britain what i find the most interesting story that i've uncovered for the book is the parallels between megan and diana in the early days of their royal career megan was called pretty early on duchess difficult she was blamed for everything that went wrong from the apparent row with the queen over the tiaras to the bust up with kate and I found it fascinating that at a time when Meghan was struggling to cope with the royal world, the protocol and so on, in her own generation before, Diana herself, she had been described as a fiend and a monster by various gossip writers uh, and someone who sacked members of staff. And she as well was struggling to cope with uh, depression and all kinds of illnesses. And there's a fascinating parallel there. As I say in the book, there's not a decision, not a day goes by without Harry talking about what would Diana have thought about this. And she's very much the third wheel in their marriage. He talked about it on their engagement, how she'd be thrilled jumping up and down. Uh, he presented Meghan with uh, jewellery uh, that, that used to be Diana's. Even on the, their wedding night, the firework display <laughs> reminded Harry of his days going to uh, Disneyland in Florida with, with his mother and the thrill of seeing the fireworks at the end of the evening then. So from the small things to the big things, Diana has always been there. And would she have approved of Meghan and Harry going to California? Well, she was at the later stage of her royal career. She was thinking of going to America as well. She found it a place of openness and opportunity. And um, so she would probably have a, a guest room at their palace in Montecito. 
Well, the updated version of Andrew Morton's book, Megan, A Hollywood Princess, is out now. Well, let's bring in my panel for the week. Joining me is Kate Mansi, assistant editor of The Mail on Sunday. Welcome. And of course, Richard Eden, the diary editor of The Daily Mail. Welcome both. Uh, Richard, let's start with you. Andrew's suggestion in this book is that the royals will ultimately be quite relieved that Mexit happened uh, because it allows them now to get on with succession planning. What do you make of that? I mean, who knows what sort of what history will will tell, but I suspect he's right that, I mean, imagine how bad it could have been if it had happened even later. I mean, sort of, you know, their quitting royal duties was bad enough, but, you know, they were destined to have a key role um, with Prince Charles. You know, it was going to be this slimmed down monarchy with um, William, Catherine, Charles, Camilla and Harry and Meghan. And imagine if this had happened years later when that was already in place, that sort of model. It, it would have caused even more chaos and even more damage to the monarchy than it, than it did now. So I, th- I think Andrew Morton might be right on that point. So he, they've saved themselves a bit of admin then, perhaps. Yeah. <laughs> um, Kate, he also points out that the roles of, of the royal spares, um, be they Princess Margaret or Prince Andrew, are, are rarely easy roles. Would you agree with that? Well, yes, I think that's true, isn't it? Uh, history's told us about the heir and the spare. And in most families, you know, children are brought up and the parents tell them that they're, they're equally important. But obviously that's not the case when you've got one brother who's going to become the king, one brother who's not. And we saw that so clearly, didn't we, with Harry's interview when he was in South Africa. And he said, we're on different paths when he spoke about his brother. And it's so true. You know, William was always going to be king. And then how do you grow up in a family like that? It's absolutely fascinating, really. I mean, Diana always made such a a play and always said, well, they will look after the heir, meaning William, and I'll make sure I look after the spare. But obviously, you know, sadly, she wasn't there to kind of guide them through those, those adult years. Do you think this is something that Charlotte and Louis will face when they grow up? Well, I think if there's a blueprint that Harry can lay down successfully, this might be great for them when they grow up. But I think what you've got is a really stable family with the Cambridges. So they're going to grow up. You're going to have Charlotte and Louis probably really supporting their older brother with that role, really helping out and pulling together. But they just didn't have that stability. I mean, William and Harry obviously had a really close bond, but perhaps not as close as people expect. And obviously now there's this huge rift. And, you know, Morton calls it the Cain and Abel story. I mean, it's it's dramatic mm. stuff, isn't it, as we've seen? It is, it is. And one of the stories that's covered in the book is the famous line of succession photograph that apparently upset the Sussexes. Um, do you think, Richard, that Harry's position uh, in the royal family dawned on him perhaps a bit later than people might have thought? <laughs> I mean, who would have thought that such a lovely photograph could cause such anguish? I mean, that was the photograph, I think, t- taken in Buckingham Palace. It, it, was, it was a formal picture. But it was, it was a lovely picture, and it was of the Queen, Prince Charles, Prince William, and Prince George. So it was just emphasising that continuity and that line of succession. Um, I mean, obviously, Harry's known that all his life. But for me, what changed was Meghan. Because, you know, instead of having, um, you know, a relationship where he understood what the role was destined to be for his brother, I think you then had someone there who was playing on his insecurities and who was making things worse. Instead of saying, look, don't get you know, bothered about playing second fiddle. He had someone who was kind of um, nurturing that, that wound almost. And I think that's, 
being part of the problem. Kate, we can't not discuss Diana here. Obviously, I mentioned a lot. Andrew calls her the third wheel in the marriage of Harry and Meghan. Do you think that's fair? Well, as we'd expect from Andrew Morton, obviously he famously wrote the Diana biography. He's always going to be tying Diana into things, but I do think it probably is fair. I mean, every time we've seen、um, Meghan and Harry launch something, there's always been a very overt reference to his mother, and it seems to be guiding a lot of what they do. Um, and, and very much, kind of the shadow of Diana looms large over their marriage. But things like you know, giving her, giving Meghan jewelry. I mean, surely any son would do that、uh, with with his mother's jewelry, especially given the circumstances. Yeah, I mean, when it comes to Morton saying, well, obviously this is a sign because the jewelry was passed down. That's that's pretty normal for any family, I'd say. But. For the fact that she seems to her memory, and it seems to guide everything that he does, and it's something that he hasn't kind of worked through. Even when they launched Archwell, there was a picture of his mother that he used when he learnt, launched his new foundation. And、um, it's interesting to know, you know, how how that will play out with regards to William, because he's always seeing this reference to his mother, which must be quite uncomfortable for him as well. That that here are these memories being brought up by his brother on the other side of the Atlantic. It's a very strange、um, dynamic. Yes. Well, on the subject of the late Princess of Wales, Diana, the musical has landed on Netflix. I want to have a quick chat about it, but first, let's see a clip. Hello, I'm Diana. Wow. Well, quite a trailer there.、Um, I haven't seen it myself. And Richard, I know at least one columnist has、uh, called for Harry to give up his deal with the streaming company、uh, after, after all this. I mean, what do you make of it? I think there's a fat chance of Harry and Meghan giving up their very lucrative Netflix deal. I mean, that really was a sort of Faustian pact. I think that they signed. And I remember. I mean, do you remember that?、Um, was it from? Um, it was when、um, Prince Harry was interviewed by James Corden on that、um, sort of light entertainment、um, program, and he, in in that program, he sort of、um, defended the Crown, which is also made by Netflix, and it, it was kind of excruciating because you felt, why are you doing that? But you felt like he was justifying, maybe to himself, that you know it's not so、His、bad.、Links. But the thing is, he's got no control. He's just signed a deal with a huge streaming giant. And they can do what they like, and there'll be more examples of this, I'm sure, where there'll be programs that he wouldn't approve of or whatever, and they don't need to get his approval, I don't think, before showing them.、Um, so it, it puts him in an awkward position, and I think he is a bit embarrassed by that. We saw that in that Oprah interview where he、um, just said, "Oh, yeah, we've did these deals because we were desperate for money," kind of thing. Which would have horrified the executives at Netflix, I think, because you know you want to sign people who are really keen to make programs, not doing it just because they need a quick bit of cash. And Kate, did、um, do you think that Harry kind of understood, as Richard was saying, sort of the magnitude of this deal that he was signing with Netflix? And also, will you be tuning in? You know, it's not something I'm desperate to see based on the trailer, to be honest with you. But I think it's、um, it's fascinating, isn't it? You know. It is indeed a Faustian pact. You know, you try and if you take the money,、um, then you're in a bit of a bind. There was an interesting 
element actually on the Oprah Winfrey interview and she asks them about the crown and Harry said yes I've seen some of it and he says what about you to Megan she says I've seen some of it or words to that effect and um, it keeps coming up you know I think the crown is probably much more damaging than, than what we've just seen that's also a Netflix extravaganza and it's something that's really angered people at the palace because you're taking something that really happened but you're twisting it so you're saying well you know Charles is painted as pretty much a villain um, throughout the, the most recent series of The Crown. And, you know, is this a company that Harry should really be getting involved with? Well, I don't believe that they haven't watched all of The Crown. Um, fascinating stuff, though. Uh, let's hear now from the Mail's royal editor, Rebecca English. Uh, before we move on to this week's news, Rebecca, uh, I wanted to... Hello, there you are. Uh, I wanted hello, to Jen. ask you um, about the Andrew Morton book. I mean, how much of this do you think uh, the royals read or are aware of it? I think with respect to brilliant biographers such as Andrew, they don't tend to read the books, but obviously they are aware of the furore that results as a result of their publication. And obviously with varying degrees. I mean, I think I, I've written, maybe even mentioned on this programme, I've certainly written that Harry many times over the years mentioned to me how he voraciously devoured everything that was written about himself, from not just the newspaper articles to online articles, the comments underneath the articles, even the kind of slightly trashy supermarket tabloid magazines. He reads everything. But on the other hand, you have people like the Queen and the Prince of Wales and actually the Duchess of Cambridge who, you know, are, are quite strict in not reading about anything about themselves. And they have a team of press officers who, if there's something they feel they need to know, will make them aware of it. But uh, you have really kind of the two ends of the spectrum there. And I think probably the best way is to maybe have a strike a happy medium between, which I think the Duke of Cambridge and the Duchess of Cornwall have. They, they read a bit when they need to and then just try and park it to one side. Do you think they'll be watching Diana the Musical? <laughs> yeah, I think I think I don't think I would... Um, uh, be uh, worrying the bookies very much if I said definitely not. And um, the Queen has returned to Buckingham Palace. Uh, this is perhaps bigger news than, than sort of ordinary times when she returns. Absolutely. Obviously, she's returned after her extended summer break in Scotland. And it is bigger news because we haven't seen her there very much over the last couple of years because of the pandemic. So uh, I've been told this is something we can expect a lot of uh, over the next weeks and months to see her more back in the seat of power at Buckingham Palace. And she had an event to welcome her back. Tell us a bit about that. Yes, it's going on today, Thursday. She's with the uh, Duke of, uh, sorry, the Earl of Wessex, uh, Prince Edward, and they're launching the Queen's Baton Relay, which is in connection with the Commonwealth Games in uh, Birmingham next year. And the Queen um, even uh, popped her message inside the button, which is then sealed, and it won't be opened again until July. So, uh, you know, her arrival back at Buckingham Palace was with a bit of a fanfare today. Lovely. And moving on to Sophie Wessex. Uh, she's been speaking this week about the menopause. Uh, topics like that we don't always necessarily associate with the royal family. We don't. I really like to see this. I thought her stuff was very powerful this week. And I think this is something that Sophie and also the Duchess of Cornwall have done a lot of over the last few years, tackling subjects that are not normally on the royal radar, like domestic abuse, sexual violence, um, the use of rape as a weapon in war. And uh, today, or this week, sorry, we have seen Sophie talking quite openly again about the menopause and um, the effect that uh, it can have on women with their careers that I think they've estimated 
estimated something like 900,000 women will leave their jobs each year because of menopause-related issues. And uh, so she's uh, the patron of a charity called Wellbeing of Women, and they're launching a workplace pledge to try and get more support for women in their 40s, 50s and 60s who are suffering um, suffering from this issue. Um, and I think what she said was great. She kind of said women in their 40s, 50s, 60s are fabulous and we will always be fabulous. And what a crying shame it was that people feel that they need to slope off into the shadows. So I thought it was it was really great stuff this week. Absolutely. Well, thank you very much, Rebecca English, as always, uh, for all of that insight. Um, let's bring back in our panel. Uh, Kate, obviously, you've covered the rules for a long time. Um, what do you think is driving this change uh, in the, the sort of type of issues they're sort of highlighting now? Yeah, I think this is interesting because we've got, we see the monarchy as being a great force for stability. But it really recognises that we, they have to move with the times to be relevant. And I think we've always seen this in little ways. You know, when Prince Philip adopted his first charitable endeavours, when he, he took on the role, you know, with fields in trust, you know, playgrounds for, for children in inner city areas. They've all, and Charles has always been ahead of his time with sustainability, which now we're all talking about. But when he started talking about it, it's pretty untrendy. Um, so I think this is brilliant. You know, we've seen the Duchess of Cornwall talking about tricky issues, you know, really gritty stuff, domestic abuse, rape. And the fact they're not shying away from this is really interesting. It's keeping the monarchy relevant and this, this acknowledgement that this is what they need to do to survive. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, they have to talk about things that we're all talking about in society. Um, Richard, do you think the Harry and Meghan effect might have forced them to be uh, perhaps a little bit more aware of these things and to talk more openly about them? Frankly, no. I don't see that it's made any difference at all. I mean, if you look at these issues, I think each of them have taken an interest, whether it's the Duchess of Cambridge with um, early years, childhood and that sort of thing, um, or um, the Duchess of Cornwall with her issues. Now, they've always been happy to take these um, sort of gritty, difficult subjects and, and campaign on them. I, d I don't think really that Harry and Meghan have, have made any difference in that respect at all. I mean, in fact... You know, when they split um, their sort of charitable interest, the Royal Foundation, it was tricky about which sort of subjects that, um, that Prince Harry would, would pick up. And I think it's been quite difficult for him because they had some subjects such as mental health issues that they'd um, worked very closely on before. And then it was a question of kind of who continues with it. Yeah. But I think you're picking up on something really interesting, actually, because there has been a bit of a shift recently. Um, you've, and I don't think it is to do with Harry and Meghan. I think you're right. But I think there is this, you know, creeping acknowledgement that we've got an ageing monarch. The Queen's 95 years old, the best will in the world. At some point, we need to be planning for the future. And that's what we saw, you know, with the opening of the Scottish Parliament. You had the Queen addressing the MSPs, but you have Charles and Camilla there to support the Queen in her role. And I think we're just going to see more and more of that. So it's going to see, Char you know, as we see today, for example, Edward and the Queen, there's, there's a lot of the Queen being supported by members of the family, a very clear symbol to the world that the monarchy goes on. There are people waiting in the wings to take forward the work when that time comes. So I think you're really right to pick up on that, that yes. point. I mean, pretty, pretty vital. And uh, keeping with Charles, Kate, I want to talk about a great story uh, that you wrote at the weekend about the, the world's downsizing, which sounds like a bit of an oxymoron, but that is exactly what you're suggesting Charles is planning to do. Tell us more. Well, I think we're going to see a different monarch when we see Charles take over. So there's very, I spoke to a friend of the Prince of Wales who said that 
he very much does plan to move into Buckingham Palace when he ascends the throne, but on a much less grand scale. So we've got all those apartments at, at their availability. It will be more a flat above the shop scenario, <laughs> as it was described to me by somebody in a position to know. Uh, very much like the Prime Minister at Downing Street, I guess. Um, but a bit bigger. But, yeah, a bit grand, <laughs> I guess. And uh, the Buckingham Palace will be opened up on a, a much greater scale, and so would lots of the other royal properties. So at the moment, you can go and look around Buckingham Palace when it's open during those kind of seasons where you can buy a ticket and look around the grounds. But this is about rolling it out on a much faster scale. Do you think there could be some financial motivation as there as well? Well, I think definitely, you know, the Prince of Wales has an eye on is the monarchy good value for the public? And it's something he's really conscious about. We're in the middle of a 10-year huge renovation project at Buckingham Palace. It's costing the nation £369 million. Pounds. We anybody, want to see inside all yeah. year And anybody who's ever had any kind of home renovation <laughs> work, so we always go over budget. These things always do. So it's a huge expense. And he's very conscious of that, actually. And I think that will be a kind of uh, you know, a, a really important thing of, his, thing of his reign that he'll be looking about, looking at does the monarchy offer the public good value? Mm. And plans afoot possibly for a move to Windsor Castle for William and Kate. Um, presumably they will have a say in all of this. Well, hilariously, it was described to me that Charles thinks that Windsor's too noisy. And so, you know, when the Queen ever does a kind of television broadcast from there, she has to keep stopping when a flight goes past because the noise is too great past the window. Uh, Charles isn't a fan. Um, Kate and William are said to be quite keen to move in that direction. So, you know, watch this space. Everything will be a kind of royal <sighs> monopoly board of, you know, people moving around and and all the cards going up in the air. But nice, nice options, though. Castles here and there. and yeah. It's a lovely option to have, isn't it? Yeah, they're <laughs> it would, not short of a few places to stay. It would be salt in the wound a bit for Meghan, because I remember reading reports about how she was very keen for them to move into Windsor Castle. Oh. And I think the Queen said, actually, you know what? I think we've got a little cottage that might be more suitable. Um, but anyway. And do you think the, the Queen, uh, Charles, will have the Queen's blessing for all of these, these plans that are afoot? Yeah, it's funny, isn't it? I think um, within the palace corridors, it's something that must never be discussed, you know, because no one wants to talk about the, you know, the time after the Queen. But inevitably, you know, these are meetings that are taking place and, and have to take place, you know, just for practical reasons, really. Of course. And uh, Richard, Charles has often said that he will temper his approach to political matters and so on uh, when he becomes the monarch. But it sounds like he, he does have still some pretty radical ideas in him. <laughs> I'm not so sure. I mean, over the years, there have always been reports about, you know, what Charles is planning to do and how he's going to do this. But what struck me actually was they didn't really seem that radical. I mean, what would be radical is, for example, if, if they were to sell one of the palaces. But um, they seem to be sort of adding to them rather than selling them. I mean, for example, when the Queen Mother died, um, the royal family, or Prince Charles particularly, wanted to keep the private castle which she'd bought, um, the Castle of May. But he didn't want to pay for it. So what he did was they launched a scheme to pay for it. And that's really come back to haunt them because they've had a sort of scandal about donors, often sort of questionable donors, happy to fund this palace. So I, th I think, um, you know, what would be a bit more radical would be maybe if, if they sold one of these uh, So palaces. it needs to be more radical then? Possibly, Richard. yeah. I mean, <laughs> I, I think generally Charles will be um, less radical as king because 
um, people have always been clear that he will, although he's very strident on issues as the Prince of Wales, that was part of sort of forging a path for himself. Um, whereas as monarch, he would um, have to temper things and be more uh, more regal, I suppose you could say. Well, there we go. Watch this space. Uh, that is all we have time for this week. Uh, my thanks, uh, as always, Kate Mansi, Rebecca English, Richard Eden, Andrew Morton. And of course, thanks to you for watching. We'll see you next week. Bye bye. Thank you.